the unfolding process of our lives has its beginning in our minds. And mind, in this sense, means big mind, not mind as intellect or mind as thought. Rather, mind which includes consciousness, thoughts, emotions, intuitions, silence, sort of that combination of heart-mind in English. Everything arises or has its origin in the mind. In meditation practice, the purpose of doing this is to explore and investigate and come to understand the nature of this mind, the nature of this mind which is the source of our lives unfolding. The mind itself, or the knowing nature, is pure. Consciousness is pure. Its, its function is simply to know. But along with this knowing, there arise a host of different kinds of mental factors or mental qualities in different combinations. So there's love and fear and desire and anger and jealousy and compassion and kindness and hostility. And all of these different qualities, when they arise, they color the consciousness in a particular way. Sometimes it feels as if our minds are like a Star Wars of mental factors, just of all of these different forces and qualities coming and battling with one another. But through the cultivation of awareness, through this very powerful investigation, we come to understand something very significant in our lives. By being aware closely of what is going on in our experience and in our minds, we begin to get a very direct and intimate experience of what it is that leads to happiness and what it is that leads to suffering. Not as some theory, but it's really coming out of our direct experience, our direct knowing or seeing of what's happening in our minds. And this, this is the literal meaning of the, of the word vipassana. It means seeing things clearly. It means seeing things clearly not only in terms of what it is that's arising, but also of the laws governing the unfolding. Things are happening according to certain laws. It's not happening accidentally or chaotically. The Buddha talked of one law which governs our lives, which has huge import, which really governs how our lives unfold. And this he called the law of karma. This law of karma is the foundation of right understanding. Because what the law of karma says is that actions have consequences, that actions bring results. This is a tremendously powerful statement, and in tonight's talk I'd like to explore the implications of the statement that actions have consequences. And it's easy when we look at 
physical nature, it's easy for us to understand the concept of lawfulness. Now, there are certain physical laws at work which science studies, and we can, we can understand and see how they work. The Buddha was so extraordinary in that he was able to see and investigate not only the laws of physical nature, but the laws, the moral laws, governing this whole mind-body process. The Buddha identified the particular factor of intention or volition as being the karmic seed. It's this factor of intention in the mind which holds within it a tremendous power. Because intention or volition contains within it the power to bring about a result. So it could be likened in a way to a seed. Or take an acorn. You see just a little acorn. What's contained in that acorn? A huge oak tree. But how often do we stop to consider that? You know, when you're walking on the path and there's an acorn on the path, you probably just kick it aside, not realizing that you're kicking aside a huge tree. And we overlook, we overlook the potential, very often, of what exists in very small things. Each of our volitional actions, each of our intentional actions of body, speech, and mind is like this acorn, is like the seed, which contains within it something huge. But like the acorn, we usually overlook it. We don't pay attention to its potentiality. The intention itself, or the volition itself, is neutral. It's ethically neutral. Because its, its function is to organize the mind, to organize all the factors of the mind for a specific aim or purpose. What determines the kinds of results that come from our intentional actions are the motivations associated with it. What's the motivation behind the intention or associated with the intention? Because there's such great power contained within each volitional activity, the Buddha gave a lot of emphasis. When you read the discourses, it's just over and over again. He gave such emphasis to discriminating between wholesome and unwholesome motivations so that we can really learn and see for ourselves what are the motivations which are the seeds of suffering in our lives? And what are the motivations which are the seeds of happiness? And we've talked a lot about it during the retreat. Those things, those actions motivated by greed, or by hatred, or anger, by delusion. When we act based on those motivations, it's like planting a seed of future suffering. Because it contains within it that power. 
And when we act motivated by the feeling of generosity or love or wisdom, that's like planting a seed in our lives for happiness. This is an experiment that you can make, which is quite revealing. As you go through the day, see if you can notice as different thoughts arise in the mind, what most of the thoughts are rooted in. What factor are they rooted in? Are most of our thoughts rooted in desire, or rooted in anger, or rooted in love, or rooted in understanding? Just to notice. Because it's not something we generally pay much attention to. It can be quite shocking, actually, to see. The first stanza of the Dhammapada, which is this collection of verses of the Buddhist teachings, and they're very quintessential teachings. They, They encapsulate so much. The very first verses... The Buddha is talking about this. He says, mind is the forerunner of all things. If you speak or act with an impure mind, trouble will follow you, as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. We don't have a lot of ox carts around here, but if you've been to Asia, you have a clear picture in your mind. It's really quite amazing. If you, if you can just picture it for a moment, you know, the ox drawing the cart, and the wheel follows the cart inexorably. If we think or act with an impure mind, motiv- motivated by unwholesome roots, trouble follows us in exactly the same way. This is a very powerful statement about the nature of our lives, about suffering in our lives. Buddha goes on, the mind is the forerunner of all things. Speak or act with a pure mind, and happiness will follow you. Just like your shadow, unshakable. So again, it's pointing to how inevitably linked are our actions and either suffering or happiness in our lives. The Buddha called understanding the law of karma, he called this understanding the light of the world. Because when we understand it, it really does illuminate why things are the way they are and how they're unfolding. It's knowing very clearly and very directly what it is that leads to happiness, what it is that leads to suffering. This tremendous emphasis placed on this understanding of the law of karma. When the Buddha was talking about wrong view, of incorrect view, The fundamental wrong view that we can have is the view that actions don't have consequences. 
You know, so there's, there's a tremendous amount contained in this. The question is, how can we understand this law of karma? How can we understand it directly in our experience? Not just as a kind of philosophical abstraction, which the Buddha talked about, but how does it play out in our lives directly? How can we know? How can we test it? How can we see it in our own lives? There are some very immediate ways that we can look at and explore. The first way is understanding something called present karma. And this is very simple and very much part of common sense wisdom. We take a look at the immediate effect of different mind states. What's the effect when we're feeling loving? How do we feel? Does that bring us happiness or suffering? How do we feel when the mind is in the grip of greed or desire? Is that a state of happiness or suffering? How do we feel when we're filled with compassion or hatred? We need to pay attention, actually, directly in our own experience to the quality of our life, the quality of our mind, as these different states arise. Because then we know for ourselves, we're not taking it as second-hand knowledge. We see for ourselves this immediate karma of these different mind states. We can also see it in how people respond to us. You know, how we respond to other people. How do we relate to people who are angry all the time? How do people relate to us when we're angry? (laughs) How do people relate when we're generous? Which do you prefer? Again, this is this is all very obvious when we take the time to pay attention. But often we just gloss over it. We don't really look. We don't, we don't stop to consider this. There's another way that we experience karma, and this comes up very strongly, especially in this context of an intensive, a long intensive meditation retreat, And that is the experience of the mind retaining impressions of all our past actions. Now, actions don't happen sort of in isolation. It's not that we do something and then it's gone. It's disconnected from everything. Everything we do, the impression of that act is in our minds, as well as its consequences rippling out in the world. So what happens as we sit and we practice at different times, different of these impressions begin to rise to the surface. And dependent on the kinds of impressions that arise, if it's past unwholesome actions that come to mind, so then we can feel tremendous remorse. This is 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 an immediate karmic result which we're experiencing. If impressions of past good actions, of loving actions, kind actions come to mind, we feel a great joy, we feel a great happiness. This is a karmic result. I had one very vivid um, 
example of this in my practice and went back 30 years or more to when I was in Peace Corps training and part of the training was killing a chicken. You know, and at the time I thought, I'm going to do this and I should be able to do this and you know, I was kind of macho-minded. Then years later as I was practicing in India, this came to my mind. It was horrendous. <laughs> it was a few horrible days as this kept replaying in my mind. Yeah, and it was like replaying murder. And you can imagine how extraordinarily awful that felt to actually come face to face consciously with what I had done. You know, with that, with that kind of intention. But there's something very important that I learned in this situation. And that is to distinguish between guilt and remorse. Because often as unwholesome, past unwholesome actions come to mind, we've all done them, it's not... We're all this, we're all this package you know, of past actions. When the unwholesome ones come to mind, it's very easy to fall into the trap of guilt. What is guilt? Guilt is, guilt is really a trick of the ego. Because it's creating a sense of self in a negative self-judgment. Because the feeling of guilt is, I'm so bad for having done this. With the emphasis on the I. So we contract, we solidify the sense of self as we identify with the guilt. It's not helpful. It's just further ignorance, further delusion. There's a difference between guilt which is unforgiving. That's the nature of guilt. And what we might call wise remorse. Because with wise remorse, we can understand, yes, I've done something unskillful. That was an unskillful act. It had certain harmful consequences. We see it, we accept it, we take responsibility for it. But we don't condemn ourselves. We don't get caught in an ego a negative ego judgment. We accept it, we see it, we recognize it, we let that understanding be the cause of restraint of doing that action in the future. We learn from it. And then we go on with our lives. In guilt, with guilt, there is no forgiveness. It's not recognizing the truth of change. In remorse, there is forgiveness. Because we understand the basic, selfless, impermanent nature of things. So part of this karmic understanding of of karma in our experience is just watching how all these impressions of both the good and the bad actions, we let them come up. We recognize them, we open to them, we accept them, we experience them, we re-experience them, and we let them go. It's kind of like a karmic cleaning, karmic cleansing. Nyanaponukatera, who wrote The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, is a wonderful old German monk who's lived in Sri Lanka. He's in his 80s or 90s now. Uh, very clear understanding of Buddha Dhamma. He, he called this whole process of mindfulness the general house cleaning of the mind. And that's really what it is. We just sit and we open up, we make the space, 
and all of these impressions start surfacing. This is actually a good process. This is not, this is not something bad that's happening. It's a cleansing, it's a cleaning out. And what happens is that the mind actually does begin to feel lighter. You can kind of understand why they use the word enlightenment. <laughs> That's what's happening moment after moment. We're, we're lightening our minds. There's another interesting way we experience karma directly in our practice. And it's in the description of why people experience practice in, practice in different ways. Just as an example, some people, sort of the unfolding of the Dharma takes a long time. It's not, it's not quick. For some people, it just happens very quickly. Some people in their process experience a lot of painful feelings. Other people experience hardly any painful feelings. It's all kind of light and tingly. Well, why is this? The Buddha talked of it as being the result of different kinds of karma. People who have done a lot of practice in past lives, in the past, so the unfolding happens quickly in this lifetime. People who have not done a lot of practice in the past, we're doing it now. You know, so it takes time. People who have led strong paramis of morality over many past lives, they generally experience a lot of lightness in their bodies. People who don't have that strong a parami of morality over many past lives, we experience a lot of pain. I like this description because... <laughs> instead of getting involved in a judgment about how our practice is going, they can kind of just surrender it all to the Dharma. You know, it doesn't have to do necessarily with the quality of our effort now, our energy now. The way our practice unfolds is happening lawfully. It's happening because of certain karmic conditions. It doesn't matter. If we're on the path, if we understand the path, and we keep walking, all of us reach the place of awakening, of liberation. So it can create a lot of acceptance, a lot of spaciousness in the mind, because we understand that it's happening all lawfully. So one way we experience karma is, is as present karma, how we feel in the midst of a particular action or mind state. The second way we experience it are the different kinds of impressions that arise in the course of our practice. There's a third way that we experience karma in our lives. And this is, this is very interesting to look at in terms of our interpersonal relationships and how we are in the world. It's seeing how our minds, through repeated actions, develop certain habits and certain patterns. Now, this is the development of our personalities. If we practice being loving, if we're practicing a loving attitude, 
that force gets very strong in us in how we relate. And we would speak of such a person, oh, that person's very loving. He's a loving person. You know, somebody who's practicing anger, who just gets angry all the time as their, as their usual response to situations, that quality is getting strengthened. And so the whole development of personality takes place. An angry person, or a kind person, or a compassionate person. So our actions actually develop into patterns. There's one principle here which is tremendously important to recognize, which is that every time we do an action, it becomes easier to do that action again. And so it's not just one isolated event. Every time we do an action, we're strengthening the qualities in the mind of that action, and it becomes easier to do that same action again. And this is true both for unwholesome and wholesome ones. So we need to take care with what it is we're actually practicing. The Buddha extrapolated this process when he talked about the different realms of existence. Because it's not only developing certain personality patterns, habits of action which become very strong. At the time of rebirth, it actually conditions the appearing in different realms of existence. The Buddhist cosmology is huge. You know, when it talks about the lower realms, the the hell realms and the hungry ghost realms and the demons and the animals and then the human realm, which is the first realm of virtue and of happiness. Just to remind you. <laughs> and then, then there's the Deva worlds, you know, of sense pleasures, and then the Brahma worlds of you know jhanic happiness. But all of these realms are really manifestations of strongly established patterns of mind. What are the hell realms? They're realms conditioned by hatred. So if people are practicing hatred in their lives, that's what happens. There are hungry ghost realms of people practicing compulsively desire never being satisfied. The hungry ghost realm is the manifestation of that quality. You know, the human realm is the manifestation of generosity and morality. Those are the deva realms. The brahma realms are the manifestation of strong samadhi, and of the brahma viharas. This is a very big picture of things. And it gives a tremendous weight tremendous importance to each of our actions, because each one of our actions of our body, speech, and mind is strengthening one or another of these qualities. Where is it that we're heading? What is it that we're developing? Do we want to go there? (laughs) I think we should ask the question now, (laughs) rather than when we arrive. There are two rebirth stories, which I really like a lot. 
One was told by uh, a monk, who's actually quite a young monk, who was a teacher at the Mahasi Center in Rangoon. He, he died a number of years ago. He was, he was one of the main teachers for Westerners. And he told this story, which is a true story, which some of you have heard before. There was a, uh, a very famous Burmese actor, a film actor. And he was leading a film actorish kind of life. <laughs> and then he died. And his family went to this kind of... There are people in Burma who have the particular power to see where, where beings are reborn. You know, and so his family went to one of these people. And they said, well, where, you know, where has... Uh, call him Max. He has a Burmese name, but... <laughs> No, where was Max reborn? And this person, this man said, don't ask. <laughs> but they insisted they really want to know. They asked a second time, a third time. So finally, the person said, well, if you go all the way up to the north of Burma, and you go to this village, you go to this place in the village, there's a pig farm. Go to this pig farm, go to the kind of corral, and just stand at the edge and call out, Max, Max. <laughs> so they did this. They went out there and they called Max, and sure enough, this one pig came trotting over. You know, and then they, they did this a few times, and they wanted to make sure, and it was always the same pig. That came. So they took the pig back to the house in Rangoon, and they installed it you know, in this kind of uh, special pen. <laughs> Yeah, and they were feeding it all kinds of nice curries. And, uh, uh. Okay, that's one story. <laughs> Max the pig. <laughs> the other story is a little more upbeat. <laughs> and it was a story of one person who had just led a very, uh, a very good life. You know, who'd really practice generosity and morality and meditation. And at the time of death, you know, often at the time of death it's said that you get visions, uh, sort of karmically conditioned visions of the realm in which you will be reborn. So it kind of comes to the mind, you get a sign. And so for this person, what happened? just on their deathbed, it said that messengers came down from each one of the heaven realms, sort of extending an invitation. You know, come to this realm, come to this realm, as the fruit of all the wholesome actions that they had done. It was like that image, you know, just kind of lying there on one's deathbed. You know. Okay. <laughs> Again, all of this is to highlight the importance of understanding that our actions have consequences. We can see them in this life. We can see the development of habits, of patterns, of personality, and tendencies. And if we you know, are open to the possibility, we can also consider, consider the possibility of the same karmic 
tendencies being played out over many lives, you know, and over many planes of existence, places of rebirth. So it's important. What we do is important. Each action is generating a certain quality of energy. We need to look at what that energy is. When we reflect, or when we begin to understand deeply, not just intellectually, but when we really really get it inside, that actions have consequences. This is what the law of karma is about. Each of our actions have consequences. It changes the way we relate to our experience. The understanding of this law changes how we are playing out our lives in the world. One of the things that changes is that we begin to approach experience or relate to experience from a place of acceptance rather than one of either resentment or pride. If we don't, if we don't understand the lawfulness of things, if we don't understand the law of karma, then when unpleasant things happen to us, it would be easy to feel resentment towards it. Or very good things happen to us, we could easily get caught up in pride about it. When we understand the workings of karma and see that everything is happening lawfully because of conditions out of our past actions, there's not resentment, there's not pride. There's this quality of acceptance It's important to distinguish here acceptance from resignation. Now, acceptance doesn't mean resignation. It doesn't mean a kind of passivity. Because from the level, from the place of acceptance, we can still act. We can respond to what's happening. But we're doing it from a balanced mind rather than a reactive mind. And that balance comes out of understanding the law of karma. It influences how we relate in the world in another way, in a very important way. When we when we understand, when we are considering the fact that actions have consequences, what happens is that we begin to take much greater responsibility for our actions. And we begin to take a longer range view of things. So we're not just caught up in the immediacy of the action, blind to the, to the long-term consequences of it. What's so interesting to me is to see how aware many of us are about the long-term consequences of actions out in the world, for example, in the environment even though maybe the culture, the culture in large is not so aware of this, it's like we're becoming awakened to the fact that, you know, we pollute the air, we pollute the water, that that's going to have consequences, that we start getting sick, we start living in a diseased environment. So we're beginning to see that. It's very obvious. 
But it's another whole step to begin to see our own internal environment. What are we doing to that? And to see that each one of our actions is either cleaning the environment or polluting it. Are we paying attention to our actions and considering the long-term consequences? Do we have a, do we have a long-range vision of what it is we're doing? When we have this understanding, it leads to a tremendous interest, a compelling interest in our actions, because we realize that they're very important. But to do this takes a great deal of awareness and presence of mind, which is the purpose you know, of being here and practicing in this way. You see how easy it is simply to get caught up in the stories, in the mental, in the mental dramas, where we don't see what's going on. We're lost in unawareness. And so it takes, takes practice, it takes commitment, it takes perseverance to have this presence of mind so we actually see what is going on. The Buddha talked of this in terms of clear comprehension. What does that mean? It means considering before we act of whether the act is beneficial or not beneficial. To consider where our actions are leading. Is it to a place that brings us happiness or a place that brings us suffering? Are there qualities of mind which we want to be strengthened, which we want to be developed? Or are we acting in a way that cultivates qualities of mind that are not helpful to us, that actually bring us unhappiness? We need to be aware of what it is that we're doing. Sometimes the things in our, in our culture are so... are so radically non-dharmic, it's funny. <laughs> I, I read this on the back of a uh, book jacket. A book jacket. It says, a novel of love, lust, passion, and greed has something for everyone, a delight. <laughs> uh, that's, that's about it. <laughs> Each one of our actions, and by actions I don't only mean sort of actions of it's actions of the mind, actions of speech, actions of the body. It's like everything we do. Every volitional, every intentional act has the power. The power is contained in that intention to bring about a result. A great oak tree is going to be born from that action. So we really need to pay attention, because each of, each of these actions, it's like our mind is getting filled in a particular way. It's like drops of water in a bucket. Now we don't pay much attention to any single drop, but the bucket gets filled. 
we are creating in each moment the unfolding of our lives. Are we awake to that or are we asleep? Okay, so when we understand the law of karma, again, not just intellectually, but we really have a feel for it, that actions have consequence, it leads us to a place of greater acceptance. We get out of the reactive patterns of either resentment or pride. It leads us to take greater responsibility for our actions. Reflecting on the law of karma can also be a tremendously powerful motivation for the practice, for actually doing this practice of awareness. When we see that actions have consequences and we see that we need to become aware of what we're doing, that can inspire a tremendous energy to practice being aware. And that's, that's really what we're doing all day here. It's just practicing being aware, practice being awake. There's a, a story of Milarepa, who was this great Tibetan yogi. Um, wonderful stories. There's, a, there's like a two-volume two biography or autobiography of Milarepa, which is available. And you read his life story and sort of the tremendous uh, energy he put into his practice of awakening, very much motivated by having done some really bad things in his life due to, it's a whole long story, but due to certain circumstances, he started he had developed some magic powers and then used them in a bad way, calling down hailstorms and destroying you know, people and crops. And, and, and then he came to the Dharma and he realized what he had been doing. And so this realization of the law of karma tremendously motivated him to awaken, to purify his mind and heart. At the very end of his life, he had become a very famous hermit yogi, you know, living up just in the caves in Tibet, um, his teachings are, are held in, uh, he would utter these spontaneous songs of the Dharma. And so there are these books, The Hundred Thousand Songs of Milarepa, and they're wonderful, the spontaneous expressions of Dharma understanding. At the very end of his life, he by then had many disciples, he took his chief disciple up to some mountainside to give him sort of the secret transmission you know, the teaching who's going to pass on just the essence of all his years as a yogi. And they went on this arduous journey, and, you know, the disciple was very eager to get the transmission before Milarepa died. So they come to this very remote place, and they kind of set up a little camp. And Milarepa asks him, you know, are you ready to receive this transmission? And the disciple was very anxious to get the teachings. So Milarepa said, he bent over, showed the disciple his backside, which had become hardened like leather, you know, calloused from so much sitting. And that was the transmission. (laughs) 
<laughs> so on the one hand, it's effortless. <laughs> and on the other hand, we've got to do the work. There's one other aspect of the law of karma which I find quite interesting. And that is the teaching the Buddha gave about covering unskillful actions with skillful ones. That is, we've all done, you know, in our lives, different unskillful actions. But the power, the karmic power of those actions is mitigated when those actions are covered by many wholesome ones. Now, why is this? It's just an interesting detail of this very complex law of cause and effect unfolding. Buddha described how in our life, wholesome actions, or the, the present purity in our mind, when our mind is in a condition of purity in the moment, it attracts the wholesome karmic actions of the past. So they're drawn to bear fruit. And when our mind in the present is in a state of impurity, that draws to it the unwholesome karmic actions of the past. So it's just helpful to understand how it's all working in terms of really finding a genuine happiness in our lives. But even having done many unwholesome things, once we establish ourselves in the path of purity, it draws, you know, from over many lifetimes, our past wholesome actions. It creates a field of well-being. It's not enough simply to reflect on all this. It's important to understand it. We need to understand it. But it's not enough simply to think about it. We need to have some power and some strength in our minds which actually can apply this wisdom so that we're living the wisdom. We're not simply thinking about it. And there is one power and strength in the mind which allows us to do it. And that is the the power and the strength of renunciation. Carol spoke a little bit last night about renunciation. I'd like to talk about it in a slightly different way. Now, sometimes we hear the word renunciation and we may have certain images about it. We conjure up, well, that means you know, giving up the world and going off to live in a cave in the Himalayas or something. That's one good idea. But there are other more immediate meanings of renunciation for us. The first of them, which is the application of the wisdom of understanding the law of karma, it's the renunciation or the letting go of what is unskillful in the mind. Now, as we're sitting, as we're 
walking or going through the day and we see unwholesome thoughts or feelings, intentions behind actions, renunciation means the ability to say no to the mind. When there's an impulse to do something that we see is unskillful, renunciation means that we have the power. No, I'm not going to do that. This no, the wisdom of this no, is that it is not suppression, it is not denial, it's not pretending that this unwholesome thought or impulse has arisen. It's not suppression, it's not denial, it's not self-judgment. We're not getting into a place, I'm so bad for having this arise. It's not even aversion towards it. This no in the mind is coming from a place of wisdom, of discriminating wisdom. We see something arise, we recognize that it's unwholesome. No, I'm not going to do that. It's very simple, it's very loving, it's very firm. It's, it's as we would be with a child who is about to do something that's going to harm itself. And we say, no, don't do that. We can exercise this place of strength in our minds. You might investigate or start playing with it in very small ways. Don't take on the big things right away. You know, practice saying no to the little things, to the little impulses that come up. You see, this is not, this is not going to be helpful. No, I'm not going to do that. This no, this ability to say no when something unwholesome arises is a tremendous empowerment. Because then we're no longer enslaved by every desire, by every impulse. You see, I don't have to do this. In this regard, there's a tremendous value of the precepts as a reminder for what's skillful and what's not skillful. You know, if something comes up and we recognize this is breaking a precept, it's like a bell goes off. It says, this action is not wholesome. Can I practice renunciation in this moment? As we practice, as we practice this power, it's tremendously strengthening in our lives. There's another way that renunciation works, and it's very noticeable in intensive meditation. And that is the understanding of renunciation as conservation of energy. Because as you practice, and I'm sure to some extent, or at certain times you've, un- you've experienced this, as we practice, the energy in the system starts to build up. Things start getting intense. Sensations in the body get intense, and emotions get intense. And our thoughts get intense, and even the dreams. You know, you've probably experienced at times the dreams can get so vivid and so intense. So there's this buildup of energy in the whole system. Often this energy gets uncomfortable. It's like something like a yoga stretch. You know, when we're right at the limit and we're stretching out, 
it can be painful. It's like our whole system is stretching out, is opening up. Sometimes it's uncomfortable. The tendency, or one tendency we have, is to begin leaking a little of this energy out. You know, to kind of get back to a more comfortable space. Instead of actually conserving the energy and let it build even more. It'd be interesting to notice all the ways in which you might be having energy leaks. There are a few common ones. One is sort of the indulgence in daydreaming. And they kind of just sit down and the mind goes off on a daydreaming jag. And that, that's going to happen anyway, whether we want it to or not. The question is, do we just go with it? Do we get into the enjoyment of, oh, that was nice. <coughs> Sitting went very quickly. You know, and didn't feel much pain. But what's really happening, it's, it's an energy leak. Because we're not at that time being aware, we're not being mindful. So it has to do, again, it's not they are going to arise in our minds. It's how we're relating to it. Are, are we committed to saying, when we become aware, you know, when we wake up, do we then just go back into an indulgence of it? Or do we make the effort? Are we committed to again establishing mindfulness, even if it's still just for a few moments? Writing a lot is an energy leak. You know, if you spend a lot of time writing or reading, doing, doing, a little bit of Dharma reading could be, could, could be energizing, but more than a little bit in this context is an energy leak. How many times do you look at the same signs at the, on the bulletin board? <laughs> you know, the same notice about wear bright clothes in the forest. <laughs> You've seen it 15 times already. It's like we divert ourselves. We just, and this is common. I've seen this so much in my own practice. The, the most extreme case that I experienced, I was so desperate to just kind of leak a little energy. I started reading the ingredients on a detergent box. (laughs) That's pretty bad. (laughs) You know, how many cups of tea do we take in a day? With all of this, it's not a question of, of never doing any of these things. It's really to watch in ourselves, when is it necessary for a kind of balance? And sometimes it is. Sometimes we need to balance things out but to notice the difference between when it's important for a quality of balance and when it's extra. And when it's extra, that's where the renunciation can take place. That's where we can really begin, instead of leaking the energy, we can begin to conserve the energy. There's one other aspect of renunciation which effects a radical transformation of our understanding. It's really at the core of our practice. It's not only letting go of what's unskillful, and it's not only this conservation of energy, 
This third aspect of renunciation is the renunciation of identification with arising appearances. Can we let go of that identification with appearances that entangles us, that enmeshes us, that contracts us in the feeling of self? This renunciation is encapsulated in that statement I mentioned a week or two ago by Buddhadasa, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Nothing. Whatever it is that's arising, thoughts, feelings, sensations, stories, reactions, judgments, emotions, knowing itself, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Nothing is to be identified with. This is the ultimately freeing renunciation. We don't imprison ourselves in anything. There's a very short, uh, just a, a short little teaching. Sharon mentioned it very early on in the retreat. As you hear this, try and hear it not so much as poetry, but actual teaching about how we can be with experience, all experience. See all of this world, all of it, as a star at dawn. Now, what happens to a star at dawn? We can't see it anymore. A bubble in a stream. It's gone. A flash of lightning in a summer cloud. No, it's there and it's gone. A phantom, a dream. Can we relate to every arising appearance in this way. Choose your image, whichever of these you like. You'll see it as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a dream. Because that is the true nature of these appearances. They are empty, they are empty of substance. There's no substantial reality in them, everything. Sensations, thoughts, emotions, feelings, sounds, sights. This ultimately freeing renunciation is the letting go of identification with any of this. And what this means is, not that we close off to experience, there's complete openness. We settle back into this open natural awareness let this whole dance, this whole display of phenomena reveal itself. But we're not caught. We're not imprisoned. Okay, so when we observe our minds carefully, we begin to understand directly the law of karma, which means that actions have consequences. that actions bring results. 
from understanding this law of karma, that actions bring results, we appreciate more and more the power of renunciation. That is, the power of being able to say no to unskillful actions. The power of conserving our energy. The power of renunciation of identification. And from this development of renunciation comes a great spaciousness in the mind. We settle back into the vastness of awareness. And this allows us to be in the world and to act in the world with much greater love and much greater compassion and much greater wisdom. Let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.